Good evening and welcome to the Ecology Hour. My name is Tim Bray. With me by Squadcast is my co-host, Dr. Robert Spies, and we have a really great guest for you tonight. I am very happy uh, to be speaking with someone about birds again. Bob, do you want to introduce tonight's guest? Yes, Tim. We're really fortunate in having one of the foremost writer naturalists in the United States, Scott Widensall. Uh, who's coming to us from New Hampshire. And uh, Scott has written some, uh, I don't know how many books, but I just thought I'd mention two. Uh, one of them is Living on the Wind, Across the Hemisphere with Migratory Birds, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 1999. And second one is uh, A World on the Wing, The Global Odyssey of Migratory Birds, which was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, there's numerous other ones, and perhaps we'll get mentioned a few of those as we go through our interview today. But I'd also like to mention Scott's uh, field experience. He was a co-director of OwlNet, which is banding owls at about 125 different sites across the U.S., and also co-founded uh, Snowstorm, which uh, specializes on banding snowy owls and doing work in Alaska on snowy owls. Scott's a fellow of the American Ornithological Society. Scott, welcome. We're uh, very pleased to have you and honored to have you on our program. Oh, Bob and, and Tim, thank you very much for the invitation. I've been looking forward to this for a while. What we usually ask our guests to, to talk a little bit about how they got to be where they're uh, be, and I think you've probably got an interesting story to tell um, about your early experiences uh, and what what kind of got you interested in birding and um, kind of your path as a writer and naturalist? Well, it's, uh, yeah, I, I took a, a very non-traditional path into this. Um, I don't have an academic degree in science. I was actually a fine art major in college because I wanted to be a wildlife artist because I realized the first day of my freshman year um, as a biology major that they had expected me to do mathematics to get a biology degree. And I can't do mathematics to save my life. I've, actually, if I were growing up today instead of in the 1960s and 70s, I'd probably be diagnosed with a learning disability that way. But, um, but I've always, I, I've been interested in natural history you know, pretty much right out of the womb. Um, I was a nut about herpetology when I was a kid. In fact, I wanted to be a professional herpetologist for a lot of my, my youth. Um, I've been a birder all of my life, and I got hooked particularly on birds of prey and migration growing up in the mountains of eastern Pennsylvania uh, near Hawk Mountain Sanctuary, which of course was the first sanctuary in the world for, for birds of prey, and a huge migration point in the autumn. And the, the year that I turned 12, which was more than 50 years ago at this point, um, I, uh, I, I I just happened by dumb luck to visit Hawk Mountain for the first time on the best migration day of the autumn with, hmm. you know, just the sky was just peppered with migrating hawks and eagles and falcons. And I, 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 and I, three things happened to me that day that have really kind of changed the course of my life. I, I got hooked on the Appalachian Mountains, the recognition that these, these hills that I had grown up among were part of this enormous mountain chain running from Newfoundland all the way down to um, northern Alabama, along which every fall was this river of migrating birds, especially migrating raptors. And so I got hooked on, on birds of prey because, let's face it, birds of prey are cool. Um, but mm -hmm. most of all, I got hooked on, on migration and the spectacle of of, of birds moving these immense distances. I mean, I, I remember vividly 
how astounded I was to learn that, you know, the birds that were literally flying over my house in the mountains of eastern Pennsylvania, you know, were peregrine falcons coming from Greenland on their way to Chile and broad-winged hawks from Quebec heading for the, the jungles of Bolivia. Um, I mean, that's, that's mind-blowing stuff to a kid. And for the last half century, that, those, have, those have really been kind of the lodestars of my, of my professional and personal lives, you know, bird migration, birds of prey, and the Appalachian Mountains. You know, I've gotten more, more and more deeply involved in field research over the years. I mean, I, I got involved early on doing raptor rehabilitation, working with injured birds of prey, and then I had, um, under special federal and, and state permits, I had non-releasable raptors that I was using for education work. Um, I started bird banding um, with Hawk Mountain's research team in the 1980s, and within a couple of years had my own federal and state banding permits trapping, um, you know, migrating red-tailed hawks and golden eagles and sharp-shinned hawks and banding them and sometimes working with Hawk Mountain to put uh, radio transmitters on them. We had a chase team that was following these birds on their migration, got involved with banding songbirds and then eventually working with hummingbirds about 25, more than 25 years ago. I got deeply involved in owl research, especially working with northern sawwood owls in the central Appalachians. In fact, I still oversee um, a very large research program in, at, at a number of sites in eastern Pennsylvania. As of last year, we banded our 12,000th northern sawwood owl and used radio telemetry and radar and geolocators and a whole host of other technologies to, um, to learn more about their migration. Uh, Bob mentioned Project Snowstorm, which we started. I started with a number of colleagues about nine or ten years ago, um, studying the ecology of um, of snowy owls, where we've been deploying GPS GSM transmitters on snowy owls in the winter, mostly from about the Great Plains through southern Canada and the eastern United States. Um, uh, we haven't really done um, any work in Alaska with with them, but I do have a research project with the National Park Service in Denali National Park where we've been using geolocators and GPS tags and, and other of these new, like highly miniaturized tracking devices to look at the, uh, the migration of um, the birds that breed in Denali National Park, which literally fan out over about three quarters of the Earth's surface on their migration. They're going to South America, Central America, the Southeastern United States, across the Pacific Ocean into Africa and parts of Asia. Um, just really a, a, an amazing opportunity to work with, with those birds. Um, I've gotten involved in uh, the MODIS wildlife tracking system, where again we're using you know highly miniaturized tracking devices and a network rapidly increasing network rapidly increasing in California and across the West. In fact, network of um, automated receiver stations that that track these tiny tiny little transmitters, some of which are small enough you can put on a monarch butterfly. So. For a, I got to tell you, for a college dropout, it's been it's been fun diving deep into the world of bird research, and um, you know, I, I still very much feel like an excited twelve year old, uh, just like I did more than half a century ago. Good for you. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Hawk Mountain. We had uh, Stan Center on here. I don't know if you know Stan. Stan is an old, uh, old friend from Hawk Mountain. He's an old friend of mine, too, and uh, we worked together in Alaska, and uh, he was on our program talking about uh, migrating shorebirds, and, and uh, I think he's he's written a wonderful book, as I recall. Yeah, in fact, that was uh, one of our early interviews when we started doing this show, and, uh, and Bob invited Stan on the show, and he he provided still to my, to this day one of my favorite factoids 
<laughs> that has come out of this program about the semi-palmated plover. Uh, Bob had asked him, where do they get calcium to make eggs? <laughs> and that led to a fantastic story of semi-palmated plovers, you know, flying several thousand miles, getting to the Alaskan tundra and then running around looking for owl pellets. <laughs> so they could pick the owl pellets apart and find the lemming teeth. <laughs> oh, for because the sake. teeth were digestible <laughs> and they're made of calcium phosphate. <laughs> and so they, they pick out specifically the teeth of lemmings and grind them up in their gizzard and digest them and that's how they make eggshells that's the sort of thing that makes that makes nature just endlessly fascinating exactly yeah, yeah. well yeah. Then of course now the center family has a, a dynasty going because stan's son nathan is one of the world's leading experts on particularly godwits i mean he's followed very much in his father's footsteps right. in shorebird research and, and nathan is doing some amazing work with with wimbrels with hudsonian godwits and um, and, and other big long-distance migrant shorebirds, and, and they're particularly the impacts of climate change on their breeding populations. It strikes me, listening to your, your story, Scott, that we're kind of at a point in time where the, a, a change, a development in technology has led to this explosive growth in knowledge about this particular phenomenon of bird migration and bird movements in general. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, that, you know, the difference between how people tried to work out bird migratory patterns, uh, say, even just 40 or 50 years ago and what we're doing now and what we're learning? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I know every age thinks it's a golden age, but this really does kind of feel like a golden age um, for especially for migration or orno migration ornithology. Because you're right, we have so many more tools at our disposal than we had even just 15 or 20 years ago. Um, you know, in the 1940s, the only way we could study large-scale bird migration, short of obviously banding individual birds and hoping that they get recaptured or, or found and start to piece, you know, point to point that way, uh, which we've been doing for more than a century. But, you know, in the 1940s, George Lowry at, at Louisiana State University organized a continent-wide moon watch where on the night of the full moon during the spring and fall migration, people would sit outside patiently staring at the disk of the full moon with their binoculars or their, or their telescope and counting the number of birds that they could see flying across the disk of the moon because most birds migrate after dark. And, you know, good luck watching them. You know, I, I got... I got hooked early on watching raptors, which are mostly diurnal migrants, but the vast majority of birds migrate after dark. So, you know, just figuring out a way to, to track these birds through the darkness has, has really challenged us for a long time. And then in the 1980s, the National Weather Service built the Doppler weather radar system, and they did not do it for ornithology. But I am here to tell you it was a, has been a boon for ornithology because particularly with the new, the new versions of Doppler radar, what's known as dual polarization radar, which is sensitive enough to distinguish between ice crystals and water droplets and, you know, um, uh, snowflakes. I mean, it has no trouble distinguishing the front end of a bird from the back end of the bird, small birds from medium-sized birds, from large birds, and can tell you with great precision how many birds per cubic meter of airspace are passing over that radar station. And we got 140 some of these radar stations across the lower 48. So we can, we can now tell with, again, a high degree of precision exactly how many birds are moving across the U.S. 
during spring and fall. And in fact, if folks go to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology's birdcast page during the migration season, they'll see a map of the United States that will show in real time where the most intense migration is taking place. And there's a little ticker down in the, in the lower left corner that will tell you minute to minute and hour to hour how many hundreds of millions of birds are migrating over the, over the lower 48 of the U.S. And, you know, on a, on a big night in spring or fall migration, it's often more than three quarters of a billion individual birds. So, you know, we've got big data aspects like, like radar. And I should also mention, we have decades worth of archived weather radar data, which we now have enough computing power to crunch so that we essentially have a time machine that allows us to go back and see exactly how and where and to what degree migration has changed over the decades. So, you know, a few years ago when scientists um, calculated that we'd lost almost 3 billion individual birds in North America since 1970, a lot of the precision in that figure comes from, um, from this archived weather radar data. So we've got weather radar, we've got observational databases like eBird, that you know, 100 million bird sightings are added to eBirds database every year, which is allowing us to kind of paint in the details of what species are where at what times and in what numbers. Um, and then there's the whole miniaturization of tracking technology. Um, you know, I mentioned you know these little nano tags that are small enough that you can put them on a monarch butterfly. Well, you can put them on, on even the smallest migratory birds like hummingbirds and warblers. Um, and you know, battery technology is changing. These these gizmos keep getting smaller and smaller and more and more powerful. And um, yeah, it, it just it's just extraordinary. I mean, with the, the transmitters, the GPS GSM transmitters we use on snowy owls, they're about the size of a matchbox. They weigh about an ounce and a half. They're solar powered. They have a temperature sensor. They have an accelerometer. They have a, a cell phone modem so they can dial up through the cell phone network and send us all their data on a regular basis. Um, we can collect latitude, longitude, altitude, and flight speed information and all that other stuff I just mentioned as frequently as every six seconds on these birds. <laughs> um, so it just it gives us a window into the lives of these birds that, as I said, would have been incomprehensible just a couple of years ago. And And thank God, because Migration is the most dangerous part of a bird's life cycle. That's when the greatest mortality occurs. Um, and it's the part of their life cycle about which we know the least. And so if we're going to reverse the declines that we've been seeing in many of these groups of birds, we need to know where they're going, what they're doing, what habitats they're using. And these technologies are giving us that information. Let me, I'll just give you one quick final example here and then I'll shut up. But there's a guy at the University of Delaware named Jeff Bueller who's a specialist in using um, radar, uh, Doppler radar, to study bird migration. And Jeff realized a couple years ago that if you look at the lowest beam on those Doppler radar sites, in other words, where you're catching the birds just as they're emerging after dark on their nighttime migration, the places where the most birds are emerging are the places that are the most important for those birds. Those are the best stopover places because the, you know, the birds are like truckers at a truck stop. You know, the, the, the more crowded the parking lot, the better the place is. And so the Fish and Wildlife Service commissioned him to do a study of the Northeastern and Mid-Atlantic um, U.S. and analyze the radar there. And there's a whole bunch of places that just lit up as exceptionally important stopover sites for migratory birds. The Adirondack Mountains, the Green Mountains, the Pocono Plateau, southern New Jersey, the western shore of Maryland. 
or excuse me, the western shore of the Chesapeake Bay, those are places where conservationists need to be putting a lot of attention and time and focus on habitat conservation because that's where the birds are already um, showing us that, that, that those places are important. I have a question about the uh, what the radar senses. Is it just bird or no bird in the weather radar, or do they actually get any information about uh, the species or anything about the no, size? so they it can tell you that there's a bird there, and it can it can tell you to an extent the size of it, Bob, and and even the 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 information is fine grained enough that scientists like Benjamin Van Doren and his colleagues at Cornell have been able to show that the birds are turning slightly away from their direction of travel. In other words, they're facing slightly into a crosswind and compensating for that crosswind direction. But radar is, in the words of Andrew Farnsworth at Cornell, taxonomically agnostic. It can't tell you <laughs> what it is. It can tell you it's a yeah, bird. Yeah. It can tell you it's a big bird or a small bird, but it can't yeah. tell you what species. But if you layer that information with eBird information, you can yeah. start to figure out. And, and also, um, and this is an emerging technology that we haven't really harnessed yet, if you start layering that information with audio information, because these birds mm -hmm. migrating at night are making monosyllabic flight calls that are identifiable to species, and you can quantify the numbers, we're, we're just at a breakout point here in the next couple of years where the the audio technology and particularly the ability to analyze large recorded data sets from rooftop antennas is going to be as seamlessly and quickly automated as the radar stuff is now. I mean, it used to be it would take Andrew Farnsworth hours and hours and hours and hours and every morning just to crunch all the radar data from a dozen radar stations. And now they're doing it in real time for all 140 stations, and you know, because they've got the computing power. And big data, yeah. big data, and big computers. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And now they're they're just at the point where they're we're going to be able to start to do that with large audio data sets as well. And so my my hope is that not too many years from now you'll turn on the television in the evening and they'll they'll tell you that tomorrow you know there's a 40 percent chance of showers and 75 percent chance of gray cheek thrushes. <laughs> Sounds a little bit parallel to uh, using sonar to detect fish yes. uh, from uh, the vessels, and you know you get a signal back, and there's a little bit that goes into maybe interpreting what that species may be if you can actually, you know, work with the with the species in a cage down there and and, and calibrate the thing. But generally, you do get a you get a signal back tells you there's a fish there. Right. Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing with radar data. So uh, how often are they able to go look at the transmitter data that uh, from projects like you're involved with and find individual birds that are in those flocks? Well, it depends. So, you know, for example, um, with these nanotags, you know, it, it, it all depends on the tagged animal, whether it's a bird or a bat or an insect, flying within detection range of one of these automated receiver stations. And until recently, the, the MODIS network was mostly in the east, especially in the northeast. Mm -hmm. And my colleagues and I are partly responsible for that because we started something called the Northeast MODIS Collaboration about eight years ago. And we've, we've built now about 150 of these receiver stations from Maryland and Delaware all the way up into Maine. But there are regional 
regional efforts very similar to that going on all across the U.S., Canada, Mexico, um, further south in Latin America, across the Caribbean, and now increasingly in in Europe and, and parts of the Old World. And so, you know, as this network gets built out, like right now there's about 1,300 of these MODIS receiver stations out there. Um, now, you you know, you, I, I have not seen anybody saying, okay, we're tracking a particular flock on radar and we can tell that, you know, this particular bird was in it. Um, it's, it, it, the, the data haven't been integrated to that extent. Although, frankly, I could see that happening in the not too distant future, maybe within the next decade or so. Yeah, it sounds like something that's probably just about to happen mm-hmm. as we get more and more uh, individual birds with this kind of, you know, granular data coming out of them. Right. It, it seems like a kind of an exciting thing where you could look at a, a bird cast map showing, you know, a million birds flying somewhere and then get a signal from one of the transmitters saying, Oh yeah, one of them is X three one seven six. Right. So, I mean, so the MODIS network is run through birds Canada and, um, <laughs> they did not realize what a tiger they were grabbing by the tail when they started this in, <laughs> in I guess, like 2013 or so. And they've been scrambling to keep up with this explosive growth of the network. Um, and, I, you know, I don't think they're at a position right now to be able to, to figure out how to display MODIS data in real time. Um, mm-hmm. that, that, may, that may take another kind of quantum leap in computing power and just their, you know, their ability to, um, you know, to try to, to try to integrate that. But, um, but I could certainly see where it, it would be, it would, it should be possible to do with enough resources and enough, you know, enough programming time. Yeah. Something to look forward to. If you've just joined us, by the way, we're, uh, this is the ecology hour on KZYX and we're talking this evening with Scott Widensall, noted uh, author and bird migration researcher, uh, and we're talking mainly about so far about the technologies that are enabling us to learn a lot more about the details of bird migration than we ever thought possible before. But I'd like to get into maybe uh, some of the some of what we're finding out, some of the stories about the birds themselves. Uh, move away from the tech and and out into the natural world. What has struck you recently that's uh, really uh, something you didn't see coming? Well, I think, and, and actually this does kind of go back a little bit to the tech. Uh, one, of my, one of my colleagues at Project Snowstorm likes to say that the lives of individual birds are fascinating. And yeah. this ability to see what a particular bird is doing. And I, and I don't want to say, you know, we don't want to anthropomorphize birds, but we want to personalize them because each each individual bird is doing something a little bit different. Each species is doing something a little bit different. And when we see what they're doing in real time, it often shocks the hell out of us. For example, um, some of the scientists at the Center for Conservation Biology in Virginia, people like Fletcher Smith and Brian Watts, have been studying wimbrels on the East Coast for years. They've been They've been tagging migrating wimbrels along the eastern shore of Virginia and then following their migration up to their breeding grounds in the, in the western Canadian Arctic. And when these birds come back south, they, they mostly winter along in the, either in the Lesser Antilles or along the coast of South America. A lot of them make a nonstop flight from central Canada out over 
the Canadian Maritimes in New England and out into the Western Atlantic on their fall migration. And Fletcher and Brian and the, and the crew realized with a shock that some of these birds were flying directly into tropical storms and hurricanes. And the first time they saw this happen, they were like, oh my <laughs> God, this bird is going to kill itself. But it turns out they're not doing it by accident. They're doing it intentionally because they, you know, obviously as they're pushing into the hurricane, they're flying against tremendous headwinds. They're barely making any progress, but then they pop through to the eye wall um, and they go out the other side where suddenly they have the world's greatest tailwind behind them and it <laughs> slingshots them out across the Western Atlantic. Um, and, you know, they've seen Wimbrel do this again and again and again. It's not a mistake. I mean, birds can tell uh. there's a big storm out there. They're not stupid. And, um, but I, I think if you had asked any of us 10 or 15 years ago, you know, are there birds that intentionally fly into storms like that? We would have thought you were crazy. Um, but the, you know, the, the birds know a good thing when they see it. Um, now there are other populations of wimbrels that actually fly so far out into the Atlantic to avoid hurricanes that on their migration, they're actually closer to Africa than they are to South America before they pick up the northeasterly trade winds that, that, that bring them back in toward the coast again. Um, huh. but you know, these are, these are dramas that were going on you know, well beyond our ability to see them or, or know about them until very recently. Um, you know, we've, there's, there's so many, there's so many mysteries that we're just, you know, just now starting to crack. Um, do you, do you suppose that these wimbrels are sensing or, or sensing, uh, drops in barometric pressure somehow? I, I would assume so, Bob. I, yeah. they certainly, they, sh they certainly should be able to feel that. And we know that, yeah. You know, we were talking about hummingbirds before. You know, ruby-throated hummingbirds, a lot of them migrate nonstop across the Gulf of Mexico in the fall on their way to the Yucatan Peninsula. And when big storms, big hurricanes are brewing out in the Gulf, um, my colleagues who study hummingbirds along the Gulf Coast say, the hummingbirds just don't go anywhere. They just hunker down. You don't get these waves of birds departing, um, you know, because they're not dumb. You know, you're a two-and-a-half-gram bird. You're not going to fly 600 miles into a, into a storm. That's It's one thing for... A large, you know, bird the size of a of a wimbrel that's the size of a small duck, maybe to make yeah. that migration. A hummingbird wouldn't do that. Now, here's a here's something interesting for you to to, to mull on. A couple of years ago, there was a really controversial paper that was published, and actually, one of my former research technicians was one of the co-authors on this paper um, about golden-winged warblers in the Southern Appalachian Mountains, um, and they'd been. Tracking these birds with geolocators, which are data loggers. Now, they're not transmitting anything. They're simply recording the bird's location. To do that for you, you deploy them when the bird's on the breeding grounds. They fly to their wintering grounds in Central America. They come back the next year. You download the data and see where the bird's been. Well, they download the data, and they realize that at the beginning of the previous nesting season, just after they had tagged these birds with the geolocators, suddenly a whole bunch of their golden-winged warblers left the Southern Appalachians in Tennessee and North Carolina, where they were breeding, and flew to the coast of Georgia or Florida, or in some cases all the way to Cuba, spent a couple of days there, and then flew back again. And it's like, why on earth would birds do this? And then they looked back and said, oh, that's when that massive storm system moved through that spawned dozens of tornadoes and killed a whole bunch of people. What what appears to have happened was that these birds sensed this huge storm system coming about 36 hours in advance, flew away, waited for it to pass, and came back again. 
Now, I know a lot of ornithologists who say that's bunk. There's no way these birds could possibly have detected those storms coming. Um, you know, they must have misinterpreted their, their geolocator data. There's something, something squirrely with the data. This can't possibly be right. But not long ago, I was actually talking with a, a meteorologist at um, Penn State University who's also a really avid birder and who, along with his wife, studies um, atmospheric waves that are generated by storm systems and, and major weather systems, primarily in the Pacific. And he told me that makes perfect sense to him. That, that these birds might be able to um, detect um, these these um, atmospheric waves that are generated well in advance of moving storm systems. So I think I think we underestimate the ability of birds to sense the world in ways that we don't. I think we underestimate that at our own risk. I suppose there's not much evidence for the alternative hypothesis that it is just like Cuban music. <laughs> always possible that they're just trying to get away from my old research technician gunner. Right. <laughs> so these atmospheric waves are kind of the equivalent of a pebble dropping in a pond and sending a ripple all the way across to the other side. If I understand them correctly from Steve's ex explanation, yes, they're, these yeah, things are these yeah. things are propagated across enormous distances. Um, right, because the, the pressure drop is so huge that it'll set up a wave in the atmosphere. It makes perfect sense. Well, and we know that birds, sense. for example, we know that birds can hear extremely low-frequency sound waves. They can hear infrasound, and that's, uh -huh. you know, that travels halfway around the world from tectonic right. activity and seismic activity, you know, ocean surf, high winds and mountain passes. You know, infrasound from those sources travel hundreds or thousands of miles, and we know the birds can hear that. How do we know that? Um, they've been able to test it in uh, experimentally. You know, if you you can train a bird that, um, you know, if you're if you if you expose it to infrasound, extremely low frequency sound waves, um, and give it a food reward, and it starts reacting, looking for the food reward when it hears that infrasound. Um, you know, you don't have to do this on a bird that's migrating down the middle of the continent to test whether it can hear <laughs> the Pacific Ocean in its right ear. But, right. Uh, there's there's ways there's ways you can do that. That's really fascinating, though. I didn't really know that, and. Uh... And it does open up a different way of thinking about how they navigate on migration. Yeah. Like you said, if they're going south down our coastline over here, California, just keep the surf on your right. Right. Yeah. Listen, the Pacific's in your right ear, the Atlantic's in your left ear, and <laughs> rumbles from the volcanic from the the, the transvolcanic belt in the middle of Mexico is dead ahead of you. Huh. And that may those that may well be one of many many orientation and navigation cues that birds are using, as well as, you know, in the case of seabirds, smelling their way home across thousands of, of kilometers of ocean, using, you know, celestial orientation, the fact that um, the night sky appears not to rotate around Polaris, you know, that's the part of the night sky that doesn't, uh, that doesn't seem to move, um, you know, using the position and movement of the sun and polarized bands of light in the daytime sky, if you're a diurnal migrant like a swallow or a, um, a hawk. Um, and, and the strangest of all, which is the way that birds apparently use quantum entanglement to visualize the Earth's magnetic field as they're migrating through the night sky. Um, which is just like, I, you know, this is one of those things where I like have to tell people, I swear I'm not making this up because it really <laughs> does sound like, um, you know, like Scott's gone off his meds here or something, you know. Um, but, but, you know, we've, you know, we've known since the middle of the 19th century that birds can detect the Earth's magnetic field 
when I was in college in the 70s and, and took a, an ornithology course right before I dropped out of college, um, you know, we were taught that birds had these tiny little deposits of magnetic crystals called magnetite in their, in their brains or at the base of their bill, and that it probably functioned like a little compass. Well, except that we also knew even then that if you exposed birds to wavelengths of red light, they lost their ability to orient magnetically. So why, you know, why would red light entering the bird's eye affect magnetic crystals in its beak? It didn't make any sense. Well, it turns out that those structures in the bird's beak probably are not magnetite. They're probably part of the bird's immune system, and they don't have anything to do with orientation. Um, and what's, what appears to be happening, and this was first proposed um, in the 1970s by um, the late Dr. Klaus Schulten, uh, who was German but, but uh, spent much of his career at uh, University of Urbana-Champaign in Illinois, um, or University of Illinois-Champaign, or I, I'm, I'm, I'm bobbling, mm -hmm. I'm bobbling yeah. the name there, but in any event, Dr. Schulten came up with this notion that these birds were using a form of quantum mechanics known as quantum entanglement. Um, or radical pair theory. And basically what's happening is there, there are proteins, protein, pigment proteins in the bird's eye called cryptochrome. And they're, they're magnetically sensitive pigment proteins in the bird's retina. And when they are struck with a photon of blue light, um, they become magnetically sensitive for a fraction of a second through a process known as quantum entanglement. And it allows the bird to Somehow, we don't really know, we don't know how this looks to the bird, but somehow the bird is able to visualize the, the bands of magnetic radiation that are, that are emanating from the Earth's core. It doesn't give them polarity. It doesn't tell them north versus south. It just tells them poleward versus equatorward. Um, so it gives them, basically, it's a, it, it does give them a north-south general direction. But they can also orient magnetically on the east-west axis, and that's still a bit of a mystery. It probably lies um, in something with their trigeminal nerve in the upper beak of the bird, because if a scientist, if they experimentally sever the trigeminal nerve, the bird can still orient north and south using, um, you know, using the cryptochromes in its eye, but it loses the ability, for example, if you if you experimentally sever the nerve in the in the beak and then move the bird, say a thousand kilometers to the west and release it, it will it won't compensate for that lateral movement. It'll just orient itself north south and head north and wind up a thousand kilometers west of where it's supposed to be. If the if the nerve is intact, the bird will compensate and you know and migrate to the northeast and get back where it's supposed to go. So again, you know, a lot of mysteries, a lot of um, questions that we still don't have answers to. Well, that's the way science works, right? Every time you answer a question, you just raise 20 more. That's right. <laughs> if you're just joining us, uh, we're having a really interesting conversation about bird migration and some of the uh, mechanisms that are being discovered in bird nervous systems and other parts of their of other systems in their bodies, uh, what uh, helps them migrate. Um, a fascinating conversation with, with Scott Weidenthal. And um, Scott, I had a, a, a question because I, as I was thinking about uh, how birds orient, I know all these things are going on, but then I, I, I read, I've got more, it's kind of a vague recollection, but in, in science several years ago, there was an um, article about how bats uh, 
uh, have maps of their territories in their brain somehow and can kind of move around their territories uh, with maps. And then I put this together with some of the uh, conversations we've had with biologists about um, uh, ravens and, and uh, other corvids. And I was wondering if there's any anything that's kind of parallel to that, what, what, that those kind of systems in bats and, and uh, I must, must tie into migration as well, but there's also this aspect of being able to, when you're not migrating, but covering a large area and your normal day-to-day -day activities, mm -hmm. uh, how they keep those things kind of stored. Well, and, and again, the map sense is the, the kind of the big remaining mystery in, in bird migration, in, in orientation and navigation. I mean, exactly how they develop a map sense, where, where that comes from. Um, we should also not overlook the, the role that experience plays. Um, in, in, in a bird mapping and understanding its world. You know, the first time most birds migrate south, they're doing it either on completely on their own or in the case of, uh, for example, shorebirds, usually with others of their age. So, you know, a lot of, you know, the shorebirds, like, for example, bar-tailed godwits flying from Alaska to New Zealand across the widest part of the Pacific Ocean are doing it in flocks of other with other young bar-tailed godwits. They've never made that trip before. Mom and dad aren't there. And so that that heading and the route they're taking is genetically encoded. So they, you know, they come out of the egg with a set of instructions to fly in a certain direction at a certain time of the year for a certain length of time, but they don't know where they're going. Assuming they survive and assuming they 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 make the trip, they can they can then benefit from um, from experience and significantly change their roots. I'll give you a good example. For example, um, ospreys that, that breed along the northeastern coast. My good friend Rob Beauregard has been studying ospreys in places like Martha's Vineyard in, in Massachusetts, and he puts um, satellite or GPS transmitters on young ospreys. They've got to go to northern South America um, where they'll spend the first four or five years of their life. And they just know they've got to go south. So they take off from Martha's Vineyard and they fly straight south over the Western Atlantic Ocean. And if they're lucky, they might hit the Lesser Antilles along the way. But many of them make the trip in just one straight shot. And as you can imagine, mm -hmm. a lot of them don't make it. But having made it to South America, they spend a couple of years down there, they mature, they, they start to move north and... Then they say, well, hey, wait a minute. There's this whole stepping stone of islands up the Lesser Antilles to Cuba and then across the Cuban Strait to Florida and then up the coast. And so for the rest of their lives as adults, they'll continue to follow more of a coastal route to Florida, across to Cuba and down to the Lesser Antilles because, Lord, they're not going to be dumb enough to do that Western Atlantic flight again if they can possibly help it. So, you know, there's a, there's a combination of instinct and learning that goes in um, to this migration and and yeah building building a map of as you say Bob an incredible distance I mean you know think about you think about a, a rufous hummingbird migrating to the to the to the mountains of Michoacan or maybe one of the rufous hummingbirds that now winters in the southeastern U.S. that's going to migrate from you know the Pacific Northwest across the Midwest into my neck of the woods here in New England, and then south into the, into the Gulf states for the winter, and then migrate in March or early April west across Texas and 
uh, New Mexico and Arizona up through California and back to the breeding grounds in Northern California or all the way up into Southern Alaska. Um, and all of that in a brain the size of a Tic Tac. It's, <laughs> it's more than humbling. Yeah. Not to speak yeah. of the uh, energy dynamics. <laughs> well, exactly. Or, or just in yeah. terms of, like somebody once calculated that in terms of body lengths, that's the longest migration of any bird on earth because they fly oh, more yeah. body lengths than any other bird. <laughs> you know, they're flying about Relative four or 5,000 miles. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Some of this, the numbers uh, and, and just the, the magnitude of these migrations that we're learning about are just jaw dropping, aren't they? I've been recently uh, looking into seabirds and their staggering migratory patterns and not even migration really uh, a lot of the like the albatrosses yeah i don't know if you'd really call it a migration they're just nomadic right, exactly uh, they're on on the wing all the time but the the distances the city shearwaters you know travel what is it uh, th their migratory range is actually larger than the arctic tern which used to be the kind of the poster bird for long distance migraine well it keeps it's funny because the the, the title keeps shifting you know we went from yeah. we went from assuming arctic terns were traveling 22,000 to 25,000 miles a year and then the city turns from tasmania when they got some transmitters on them were going about 44,000 miles a year <laughs> and then geolocators were miniaturized enough we could actually start tracking arctic terns and arctic terns from greenland and denmark were traveling about 50,000 miles a year <laughs> Um, now some of my, some of my friends who've been studying Arctic terns on the coast of Maine, some of those Arctic terns winter in the Indian ocean and they're traveling 61,000 miles a year. And it's like every time I turn around, somebody's broken a new record. And again, I think it's, it's like they're in a competition with each other. Well, it's just, and I, I don't think we really have a good sense of where Arctic terns that winter in the Pacific go. Um, right. I had, I'd been hoping, you know, with my, some of my colleagues up at Denali National Park, we were hoping to start doing some tagging on Arctic terns up there to try to get some answers to that. But the, the tern colonies have been a whole lot less uh, predictable and reliable in recent years. And we don't want to be deploying tran or geolocators right. that we can't then recover. So we've held off yeah. on that. But um, yeah, I think, I think we're just, every, every time we think we understand what the limits of bird migration are, the birds blow right past them. I mean, right. the, the fact that we've just discovered in the last 10 years that multiple species of swifts in the old world do not stop flying for up to 10 months of the year, except for the two months of the year when they're actually nesting and are stuck sitting on a nest or bringing food back to their chicks. They simply don't stop. They, they, they're in constant, continual, 24-7 aerial flight. Um, <laughs> and that's powered and flight. That's powered flight, yeah. And, you know, of course, they can eat on the wing. We know that that birds sleep on the wing through unihemispheric sleep, where they put one half of their brain to sleep at a time, the same way that marine mammals do. Um, and until recently, until very recently, we thought this was something that only old world swifts did. But in the last, oh, I don't know, six months or, or less, scientists published a paper showing that black swifts that breed in, in Western North America and winter in South America do pretty much exactly the same thing. You know, they put little accelerometers in their data loggers and the accelerometers show the birds simply do not stop flying for months and months and months and months at a time. Yeah, it's amazing. And albatrosses kind of similarly, they, they will rest on the water, but 
they don't like to. No, that's <laughs> true. But you know, think about sooty terns, which can't rest on the water because they're not waterproof, unlike albatrosses. Ah. When, when sooty terns, uh, when a, a fledgling sooty tern leaves its nesting island in the tropical Pacific or the Caribbean, they don't come back to land until they're old enough to breed at the age of four and a half or five, which means that for four and a half or five years, they are in constant flight. You know, oh, sipping oh, sipping seawater yeah. and filtering out the the salt uh, with the glands and yeah. you know the salt glands in their head and plucking food from the surface of the ocean and just endlessly, endlessly, endlessly flying. The only time they get a, a rest from flying is when they find some flotsam. Yeah, uh, exactly. I've seen Arctic terns yeah. thirty miles offshore. Yeah. You know, standing on a piece of floating bull kelp. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 look, I, I imagine that the sooty terns do the same thing from time to time, but I think it's fair to say that, you know, 99.9% of the time, um, from the time they leave the island until they come back to start to nest again, um, they're they're on the wing. Yeah. And that kind of highlights, you know, what we started talking about earlier in the show about, you know, the way we can study these things now that's different. You know, these pelagic seabirds, it's kind of like uh, the way we used to a lot of the pelagic uh, fish. Once they got into the ocean, we had no idea where they mm -hmm. what they did. Yeah, because there was no real way to study them. Uh, they only come to shore once a year. In fact, some of the seabirds don't even do that every year. They nest maybe every second or third year, and so they come onto this little island for a couple of months, raise young, and then they just disappear into the ocean. And we had absolutely no way of figuring out what they were doing out there, where they go, and what we're finding now is mind-blowing. Right, and of course some of these, as you know, are coming and going to their breeding sites under the cover of darkness, so we don't even know, right. we don't necessarily even know where they're breeding. We, I mean, look, we, we don't even know what's out there. They're still discovering new species of pelagic birds. There are, you know, birds showing up where in, in quote-unquote the wrong ocean, like a Tahiti petrel showing up off the coast of North Carolina. <laughs> um, there's also what pelagic birders, um, off, uh, Hatteras, um, off the, off the, uh, the coast of North Carolina refer to as the, the whiskey tango foxtrot petrel, because they have no, they've seen yeah. it a couple of times. They have no idea what it is. And their only response was WTF. Um, yeah. you know, it's, uh, they don't know if it's a, an unknown species, if it's a weird plumage of a known species, if it's a hybrid, um, that's, you know, in terms of our understanding of migration, you're right. Pelagic seabirds are, you know, that's the unknown country. I'd like, like to touch a little bit, uh, and pick your brain on hummingbird migration and, and the energetics involved. We talked about the Rufus hummingbird and, uh, these things are going, as I understand, sometimes across large stretches of water. And my understanding of hummingbird physiology is that it, under normal circumstances, they've got to get something to repower their <laughs> their their high metabolism every 15 or 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And I go, how do you put those things together? Do we know how they store enough energy to actually go on long flights? Or are they somehow figuring out how to stop every once in a while and pick up something to, to charge their physiology? Well, if you if you're a ruby-throated hummingbird flying 600 miles across the Gulf of Mexico, there's no place to stop. Um, yeah. So it's it's all about the fat, baby. Um, they put on a tremendous amount of fat. Um, 
I've been I've been banding hummingbirds for about the last 20, 25 years, and it, it's really extraordinary to see what little pudge balls these birds turn into just before they make these transgulf migrations. You know, you can have a, a ruby throat that has a, a lean weight of about 2.4, 2.3, 2 2.4 grams, and it more than doubles its weight before it leaves. And in fact, um, the, the, the person who taught me, one of the people that taught me to band hummingbirds is the late Bob Sargent from Alabama, who was an, a remarkable guy. Um, he was a, um, he was a retired electrician, he had no formal scientific training, um, had, had, um, been banding hummingbirds for years, and he had banded, I don't know, he and his wife Martha Gale had banded something like 60 or 70,000 hummingbirds. And when we were, when I was doing my hummingbird bander training with him back in 2001, when the hummingbird would fly into the cage trap, Bob would predict its weight to within a tenth of a gram. And the first time he, <laughs> the first time he did this, I thought it was just, you know, it was a lucky guess. And then he kept doing it again and again and again and again. I finally said, okay, you know, how the hell are you doing this? And what it was, was he was listening for the pitch of the hum of the bird's wings, because the oh. fatter and heavier it is, the harder it has to work to stay in the air, and it changes this. And he had a very, very good ear, as you can imagine. Um, and he'd done it a lot. Um, I will say, I never, I never got anywhere to the point where I could begin to, to replicate that. <laughs> but they, they, so they're just, they're just laying on so much fat, and they burn that as they're making this migration, and you know, if, if they're coming north in the springtime with tailwinds behind them from when they leave Mexico, they can make that flight in 18 or 20 hours. Um, and they can kind of do that without breaking a sweat. Now, that's beating their wings 60 times a second with their heart beating 1,200 beats a minute. Um, wow. But if they, hit, yeah. if they hit headwinds, if they hit storms as they're coming across the Gulf, it can take them up to 35 or 40 hours to make that trip. And at that point, and this is not just something that hummingbirds do, but any of these birds will start catabolizing their muscle tissue. They'll start catabolizing organ tissue. They'll maintain their, their, their metabolic water balance basically by, by, um, you know, using the water, the moisture that is stored within their organs. Um, and in fact, you know, migratory birds undergo a lot of sometimes almost contradictory internal organ changes. During their migration, we know that you know a, a number of species of long-distance migrant shorebirds, like those bar-tailed godwits that fly eleven days nonstop from Alaska to New Zealand, they will essentially get rid of their digestive system before they take off, and yet wow. and you know translate that into a fifty percent increase in muscle mass in their chest and a thirty to fifty percent increase in heart muscle mass. Whereas other shorebirds, like some populations of red knots, their organs will actually get larger in migration, their digestive organs, probably as a way of storing energy so that when they arrive on the breeding grounds in, in the spring, in the Arctic, when everything is still frozen, they have, uh, you know, they have a buffer of, of energy and water um, and resources that they can draw on beyond, um, beyond the fat reserves that they use for their migration. So there's, there's a ton of different ways that, that birds can approach this problem. So do you know if these, these birds that sacrifice their parts of their alimentary canal uh, to, to get energy for migration, did they, they must reconstitute that somehow? Oh, yeah, sure. So, so basically... They regrow it? Yeah, so these wow. bar-tailed godwits, you know, when they're preparing to leave from Alaska, they undergo what's known as hyperphagia, which is binge feeding, where they just 
eat for for weeks ravenously. Yeah. They'll more than double their weight. And they, their digestive system, especially their stomach and intestines, to a lesser extent their liver and kidneys, will shrink very, very rapidly and atrophy over you know the course of just um, a few days to a week. They take off. Mm. They make this flight to New Zealand or the coast of Australia. And then as soon as they land, they regrow their, their digestive organs. They spend the austral summer feeding in these rich tidal estuaries like on the Firth of Thames and on the North um, Island of, of New Zealand. And then come March and April, you know, they, they balloon up in fat, their guts shrink back down again. They fly 6,000 miles to the Yellow Sea between China and the Korean Peninsula, regrow their guts, feed ravenously for several weeks, guts shrink back down again, fly 4,000 miles back to Alaska. <laughs> so it's like the ultimate yo-yo diet. And, yeah. and that would kill you and me. I mean, that's, yeah, doctors have yeah. been telling us for years that that's the worst thing you can do. And yet they go from a sumo wrestler to a skinny little runway model to a sumo wrestler. And they do that three or four times a year, three times, wow. three times a year, basically for 25 or 30 years. Um, wow. and in fact, one of the scientists I, I quote in uh, A World on the Wing, talks about how if you look at the at the blood profile, the blood chemistry profile of a migratory bird about to take off a migration, it is like a diabetic coronary patient, you know, who really is like moments away from death in the ER. And yet it doesn't seem to have any kind of long-term impact on the birds. So that's one of many reasons why human physiologists are studying migratory birds, because there's if we can crack how migratory birds are able to do this, um, it may have significant impacts on human health. And in fact, I'm, I'm pleased to say, um, I recently put a researcher in Texas who specializes in how humans gain and lose muscle mass in touch with some of the folks working on these long-distance shorebirds that, 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 you know, and it's not just shorebirds. I mean, a lot of migratory birds can gain muscle mass without exercise. And she thinks she's figured out how the birds have done it and how we might be able to replicate it in people. And sign me up for that pill. <laughs> I, 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 I want to be one of the guinea pigs for that one, to get lots of muscle mass without exercise. Well, it sounds like uh, there's a lot to be learned from studying the nervous system and the hormonal uh, messaging and so forth that goes that takes part in these migrating birds. Right. Yeah, because they've been they've been doing it. Setup. Yeah, they've been doing it for millions of years. I mean, all we have to yeah. do is mimic what they're doing, and you know, apply it to problems of, of human health, and uh, it may it may solve some big issues for us. Yeah. So that's all we have to do is learn how to do quantum entanglement, and <laughs> you know, shrink and regrow organs right. at will. Right. So so the next time you hear some 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 physicist bragging about how they're going to harness quantum entanglement. To create faster than light communication and unhackable right. quantum computers, you can just remind them birds have been doing that for like probably millions of years in their eyes. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. They solved that about 50 million years ago when the dinosaurs got That's out of the right. way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Well, this has been an interview full of wow moments, hasn't it, Bob? Yeah, it's been a great interview. Um, I learned, a lot. Talking, I learned yeah. a lot. Yeah, yeah. We're talking this evening with uh, Scott Widensall, a well-known author, and we haven't really talked about your books at all, <laughs> and we probably should. Uh, this would be a, a great time, I think, toward the end here of the interview to have you just mention your recent 
books and uh, which ones people should go to to find out more of these uh, this fascinating science of bird migration. Well, an awful lot of what we've been talking about was in uh, was in my, my book, A World on the Wing, which was uh, which came out last year. It's published in the U.S. by W. W. Norton, and it is out in paperback. Um, and um, New York Times bestseller, it, right? It was. It was indeed. It was indeed. Well, congratulations. Uh, and with good reason, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's also, and it's, it's the... birds. Come on. There's, you know, um, <laughs> thanks. I mean, really, seriously, thanks to the pandemic, there are a lot more people that are paying attention to birds than there were just a couple of years ago. And that's great because birds need every friend they can get right now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's true. It, it became very... probably They've got probably more to tell us about uh, global climate change, too. Absolutely. As people begin to, uh, uh, interrogate these huge databases that we've had. Yeah, they've been. Yeah, they, yeah. They, they were kind of first responders in a way. We we started seeing patterns several years ago that were essentially the all the proof you needed really to go beyond the the theory to uh, effect. That's for sure. Uh, one of the things I'll just mention um, in regard to the books is that, as you can probably tell from listening to him speak. Uh, Scott Widensall is an extremely eloquent <laughs> author, and so the books are quite a pleasure to read, just as literature. I'm uh, almost finished now with uh, your book on the history of birding, and I found that really fascinating and really a lot of fun to read. So, okay, thank you. I'm so I'm glad you enjoyed it. We'll put some information on our website, uh, some links for you to find out more about Scott Widensall and his and his books, but also some of the uh, research that he's mentioned during the show tonight. Uh, I'll put a link on there for BirdCast and some information about MODIS. And maybe, uh, Scott, if you can send me a link for the quantum entanglement study, I would love to have that one on there sure, as well. I'd be happy to. <laughs> and maybe Alnet. And Alnet, yeah, exactly. There's a yeah, we didn't even wonder- get to hear... About yeah. the snowy owls. Yeah. Wonderful picture on your website of you holding a, I guess it's a, is it a snowy owl? It is, yep. Yeah, yeah. beautiful, beautiful bird. Been a real privilege to work with those birds, I can tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love your uh, tagline that you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, my, my friends are cooler than your friends because I get text messages from snowy owls. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess nowadays scientists are probably getting text messages from all kinds of organisms. And... Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, Scott Widensall, it has been a pure pleasure, and I think we could talk for hours and hours. Well, it's been my pleasure as well. I mean, thank you so much for including me. It's been a, it's been a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed it tremendously. Us too. Great. Thank you so much for being on our program. You've been listening to the Ecology Hour on KZYX, and our guest tonight is uh, Scott Widensall, researcher and author of several books, uh, um, mostly about birds and bird migration. And for more information and to follow up on the stuff we've been talking about, go to our website, which is ecologyhour.wordpress.com. That's uh, ecologyhour, all one word, .wordpress.com. Thanks for listening tonight, and have a great evening.
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.